day, I'm, I'm beginning to think about like just living out of a tent for the rest of my life. Like, how can I just live out of a tent and have this blue camp chair and this campfire and this charcoal? And how can I just do this for the rest of my life? Because this is, this is no worries and it's so easy and I, I have no cares and distractions. If I want to make food, I make food. If I want to take a nap, I take a nap. If I want to read a book, I read a book. And it's only like 20 bucks a night to camp, right? And so that's a beautiful thing. Um, But that's the first day. (laughs) And then I start to twitch a little bit because my cell phone has no service. And I'm wondering, like, what in the world emergencies might have happened while I was gone, which really, you know, none of that has happened. And so your connection to the world and you find out how addicted you are to your phone when you have no access to it. Uh, It might be there, but it's useless because it doesn't work in the way you want it to. And then you realize that you're sharing bathrooms with about 100 other campers. And so you go and you expect a nice hot water. And so you push the button and out comes cold water. And you're just like, oh my goodness, like why is this this way? And then all these things that you thought that you didn't need, now you all of a sudden need and you can't wait to go home. (laughs) You're not content. Because you miss the luxuries of home. There's something to be said about the minimalistic lifestyle. And there's a big movement here in our country to live as minimalists. I I think that's rather funny. Americans living as minimalists. Uh, But um, uh, this life of simplicity. But really, we have to ask, what do we ultimately need? And why do we need it? Because God has called us to the Christian life, a life that is meant to live in honor and worship of Him. And what do we need for that life? And here's the big idea of where I'm going to take us in this passage, is that if you have Jesus, you have all you need for this life. And He empowers you to a life of contentment. If you have Jesus, you have all you need for this life, and he empowers you to a life of contentment. Joy in Christ, nothing else. Now, chances are we all would affirm that statement. Chances are we would all say, yes, I need Jesus. And I need him most of all. But do we live that way? Most of us would agree that Jesus Christ is enough in what he has done for us in his death, burial, and resurrection at the cross was enough for eternal life. It was enough to save our souls. It was enough to bring salvation to us. It was enough to bring us from death to life. It was enough to resuscitate our dead hearts. It was enough. But is it enough not only for eternal life, but everyday life? Is Jesus enough when you get the pink slip on Monday morning in your job? Is Jesus enough in the midst of tragedy When you lose a loved one, or you're stricken with cancer, or a loved one is going through something incredibly difficult. Is Jesus enough in the midst of relational conflict and turmoil? Is Jesus enough 
for you in your everyday life. Is Jesus enough? And Paul is convinced of it. Paul is convinced that Christ is enough. I want to give us an illustration for this in order to set up the Apostle Paul's words to us now. And I want to do so from the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul wasn't always the Apostle Paul. In fact, he was known as Saul of Tarsus. He was a man who sought the destruction of the church. It's ironic how a man who would seek to destroy the church would be a man that God would use to ferociously advance it. Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee of Pharisees. If you look at the book of Philippians chapter 3, you read Paul's laundry list of all the things that he found in the gain columns of his life, all the things that were credited to his name. He was blameless in accordance with the law. As to zeal, he said, he persecuted the church. He sought to bring destruction and death and an end to this thing called Christianity and the gospel. And it's ironic that the man that was most passionately against it would be the man that's most passionately for it. This is what God does. He's in the business of this. And so Saul of Tarsus was on his way to a place called Damascus. And if you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9 and you read the opening words, it says that he went to Damascus breathing threats and murderous thoughts. He wanted to see this work of Jesus Christ arrested in its tracks. And so he sought to persecute, to harm, to murder, to imprison those who believed in and were proclaiming the gospel in Damascus. And as Paul was on the road to Damascus, the Bible says a bright shining light appeared before him. And this bright shining light blinded him and his entourage all left in absolute fear. And out of this light came a voice. And the voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul replies, he says, who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And Paul is arrested in that moment. He stopped. There's nothing. There's nowhere he could go. And in that moment, in that moment, he went from breathing murderous thoughts to breathing in the breath of the Savior Jesus Christ who brought conviction to his soul and life to his dead heart. This amazing thing that took place And the story doesn't end there. There was a man named Ananias who was in Damascus. And Ananias, I I find this an absolutely incredible story because Ananias is in the place that Paul is going to persecute. And Ananias gets a vision from God that says that he is to go to a street called Straight. And he is to go to the house of a man named Judas. And in this house, he is to 
see a man named Saul of Tarsus, and he is to lay hands on him so that he might be restored his sight. Could you imagine being Ananias in that moment and getting the word that you were to go and to lay hands on the man who wants you dead? And Ananias, if you pick it up with me, you can read about it with me in Acts chapter 9 as Paul or as we see recounted in the book of Acts. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings, and children of Israel. <laughs> that this man who would seek to stop the advancement of God's gospel is now a man that God handpicked and chose to stand before kings and proclaim it. He was the one who would make known the riches of the mystery of the gospel to Gentiles. Those who were far off, those who were not of the ethnic heritage of the Jew, those who were different, those who were considered unclean, God would use the Apostle Paul to say, no, in Christ you are clean. It doesn't matter your race, ethnicity, nationality. That's the beauty of the gospel, is the gospel compels all to come. And he would also bring conversion to the Jews who stood in this works-based righteousness, the Apostle Paul wrote some of the most amazing passages such as we read a few weeks ago in Philippians 3 against our works earning for us salvation. But salvation is a gift of grace in God through Jesus Christ alone. And this is what God would have for the Apostle Paul. And if you look at verse 16, you see this. This is God speaking to Ananias here. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. How much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So fast forward to the book of Philippians. Probably around 30 years after this conversion point in the Apostle Paul. Paul has suffered for the name's sake of Jesus Christ. He tells us his suffering when he says that I've been shipwrecked. I've been bitten by a snake. I've been stoned. I've been beaten. I've went without food. I've been through trials and tribulations. And you read this list of all that, that God had allowed Paul to suffer for his namesake while advancing the gospel through it. You see that Christianity is not about your health and your wealth and your prosperity. I want you to know that. There's many people who leave the faith because they think Christianity is all about my health and my wealth and my prosperity. And somehow God did something wrong and because God didn't do what I wanted Him to do or what I thought He would do or what the preacher told me He would do, I'm giving up on him. I'm walking away from him because I wanted Jesus to fix this. I wanted Jesus to give me that. I wanted Jesus to do these things and some of them might be good things. 
But the Bible says that it's a good thing that you would suffer in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a good word in that. It's not something that draws uh, numerous crowds to the church. It's not something that sells many, many books. But it's something that brings freedom to the saints to know that Christ is enough even in the midst of our harshest and hard times. So I want you to think about the highs and lows that the Apostle Paul might have been through. And one example is in Philippi. His first day in Philippi, he's down by the river and this woman Lydia is there and he proclaims the gospel to her and she's converted. Lydia is an entrepreneur. She's a wealthy woman in that time period. God had had given her that wealth to use for his purposes. And after she's converted, she invites the Apostle Paul and his crew over to her house. And you've got to imagine that she's got this lavish and lush home. She's got many big bedrooms and she's got people cooking food. And that night, Paul is eating steak dinner and he's thinking, man, I really like Philippi. This is, a, this is a really cool deal. First day, Lydia's converted. God uses him in a marvelous way. He's finishing up with a full belly after a steak dinner and a good night's sleep. That's a good day, isn't it? We would all say amen to that, right? It's out back tonight. The next morning, down by the river again, slave girl says, is demon-possessed, and she... She says, these are servants of the Most High God who proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. And she says it over and over and over again, so much so that it becomes an annoyance and a distraction to the Apostle Paul. And so what he does is he says to the demon, go in the name of Jesus Christ. Good news, demon's gone. Slave girl finds Christ. Bad news, her owners were making a profit because of this demon because they were, she was fortune telling and now there's no fortunes to be made by the fortune telling and so they had Paul dragged out, beaten and thrown in jail night number one, steak dinner in Lydia's house, night number two dragged out, beaten and thrown in jail, I know highs and I know lows Matt Chandler says this Hold in your mind, not just Paul relaxing at Lydia's house, eating steak. Not just Paul confounding his opponents or casting out demons or enjoying the glory of God's miraculous wonders. Hold in your mind his being scourged, having the flesh torn from his back. Hold in your mind he's struggling to keep his head above water as the ship he's on sinks violently into the watery abyss. Hold in mind his restless sleep at night while thugs scour the streets to find him and kill him. Hold in your mind the vision of his body crumbled on the ground, face in the bloody dirt covering his head and body in a desperate bid not to die from the seemingly unending onslaught of stones. He must suffer for his name. Paul says as well, that it is granted unto us as a gift that we would suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Now, we may never suffer like the Apostle Paul did. Even if we do, we should count it as a gift. 
but at the same time, we will suffer. I love the way Josiah talked about it last, a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago, when he said, we will all suffer, and that denying the cross will cause us to suffer. When you, or, I'm sorry, not denying the cross, taking up your cross and falling after him. A lifestyle, a life of self-denial is one that will receive an onslaught of suffering from the world around us. We'll all suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And it is a good gift because what it does is it strips everything away to where the only thing that we have to count on and rely on, even more than food and drink or any such thing, is Jesus. And that's what the Apostle Paul wants for the church to have in mind. So in this passage, I'm going to breeze through it, but I think that illustration is important for us in order to understand where's Paul, where Paul is coming from and to place our lives in the middle of it, where we're at right now with what we're going through, with what's on our heart. Undoubtedly, some of you came into your hearts were heavy this morning, maybe for someone or with something, with some need that you might have. Let's place that at the cross of Christ and allow God to do his work. Three points for today. Number one, the root of contentment. You'll see that there's the root of contentment in verses 10 through 13. Point number two, there is the fruit of contentment. We'll see that in verses 14 through 20. And then finally, Paul gives these final greetings in verses 21 through 23. The root of contentment Pick it up with me, Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Paul says, I rejoiced in God. Why did he rejoice in God? Because the church of Philippi was concerned for him. So concerned that they sent this gift to him while he was in jail. They sent a care package to him. This care package was a package that was designed to meet some of Paul's physical needs in that time. And Paul says, I give thanks to God for you. I give thanks to God for you. The first thing I want us to see, that contentment is rooted in gratitude towards God. Contentment is rooted in gratitude towards God. If you are a content person, you will be a person that is gracious, that is grateful that God would care for you and give you according to your needs and what he desires for you. And Paul says, I thank God for you, church, because you are concerned for me. Notice he doesn't mention anything about the gift, but of the heart. That's because generosity is a heart issue. We're going to get into that a little bit later. But Paul, being content, is quick to give thanks One of the reasons, one of the ways you can know if you're a person that's content is, do you give thanks to God for people in your life? Do you give thanks to God for situations and circumstances and His provision? Do you give thanks to God? Or do you complain to God? It's the difference between contentment and entitlement. 
An entitled person doesn't give thanks for anything because they think they're entitled to it. They deserve it. They've worked for it. They've earned it. God owes it to them. A content person is gracious and gives gratitude freely because they know all things are a good gift and they have no problem saying thanks to God and thanks to others because everything is undeserved. That's an amazing thing to be a content person because that allows us to be joyfully gracious and grateful to others and to the Lord. Are you grateful? Continuing on, contentment is learned. You don't come out of your womb content. If you've had kids, you realize this. The baby is born and what are they doing? They're crying. They're not content from the moment of their birth. Right? They need mom to feed them. They need dad to change the diapers. We had twins. We know this really well. Carrie has two, we had two twins that we had to figure out how are we going to feed them? How are we going to change them? How are we going to do this three o'clock in the morning thing without dying overnight? Right? And thank God that didn't happen. God gave us everything that we need. And I never want to go through that again. But it was difficult. I remember Carrie's feeding one and I'm changing diapers and we're putting them to bed. It was an assembly line at 3 o'clock in the morning in our house at night. And then the kids, they'd go on just from their needs like food and water and changing diapers and clothing and having a roof over their heads to where their needs become things like ice cream. I need ice cream. No, you need to eat your peas. You don't need ice cream. You need to eat your peas or you're going to need a spanking. That's what you're going to need. You don't need ice cream, right? We're not born content. Contentment is not something that we naturally have, especially here in the United States. Can I tell you, we have option overload. You're going to leave church today and you're going to have about 200 different options about where you want to eat. And if you go to Publix, even the small one off of Colonial, you're going to have 500 different options about what you want to eat from Publix. When you leave church today, if you turn on Netflix, you've got thousands of choices. Anything that you want to do, you can do it. And we live here in Orlando, the family entertainment capital of the world, and we've got option overload galore and you know that what that has made us it has made us less content and more demanding and more particular listen you bring that into christianity and it will kill your faith you bring that into christianity and all those options and it will destroy your faith because you think that somehow this needs to go your way according to your timing according to your plan And you start telling God what to do instead of obeying Him. That's what begins to happen. Learning contentment is learning obedience and learning to say, God, I will follow you. I will trust you. I put my wants and needs at your feet and you tell me what I need and I'll do it. Contentment is learned. It is learned. Even within Christianity, we must be on guard for this. Because right now, there's churches that you can go to. There's places that you can meet at. There's things that you can do. If you don't like something here, you can go around the corner. You can go get it over there. Here's what that does. It turns the church into a place that dispenses goods and services instead of a partnership. Instead of striving side by side for the advancement of the gospel. Friends, we need partners. 
We need brothers and sisters locking arms, proclaiming Jesus, walking people through hardship and heartbreak and difficulties and destruction and our own sin and shortcomings and messes. We need that. We don't need to push eject, but walk in obedience and say, God, use me, even though it might come against my own wishes and my own demands. I lay them at your feet. I say, God, use me. Unlearn the things of consumerism and learn contentment. Contentment isn't based off circumstances. Contentment isn't based off circumstances. You you might have your list of needs and say, God, I I can be content as long as I live in Orlando and I'm right by the Magic Kingdom or as long as there's Chick-fil-A close by or I went to Polio Chopacal last week and that was really good and it's only five minutes from my house. God, I'll be content as long as there's a Polio Chopacal by my house. That'll be nice. I can get some of those plantains. It's really good. Right? Okay, amen. I'm going to go there for lunch. We all have one option. Polio Tropical. Sorry. Lost my place. Contentment is not based on circumstances. It's not based off circumstances. The only thing you need for the Christian life is Christ. Paul says it. Paul says it, not that I am speaking in need, for I have learned that in whatever situation I am to be content. He's been through the highs. He's been through the lows. I know how to be brought high. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul knows how to be rich and how to be poor. He knows prosperity and he knows poverty and he knows in his times of prosperity that he still needs to rely just as much on Jesus as he needed to rely on him in his poverty that's important you're going to go through highs and you're going to think I can do it man I am so amazing I just earned this I just got this I've got money in the bank I'm going to rely on my money now I've got money in my retirement I'm going to rely on my retirement now I'm going to coast through life I don't need Jesus I can do this thing nice if I need him to be an advisor then I'll call on him and he'll come and give me a little counsel and I'll do things my way and take his word into consideration that'll kill you that'll kill your faith Because you are not meant to live prosperity all the time. This is why God gives us trials. To strip us of that. To show us that we need Him. I've had friends that were going to Brazil as missionaries. They were pregnant with their third child. They were excited about God's work in Rio de Janeiro and Brazil. And when they went to Brazil, only after a few months, my friend Mark had brain cancer. They had to fly him back to the United States for an emergency surgery. He went straight from the airport to the hospital. While he was on the plane, he was having seizures. Seizures caused a stroke. Blood flow stopped that was feeding this cancer. It was a miracle, but it left him paralyzed in the left side of his body. God, use me, use me, use me. What does God do? He uses him with cancer. It was beautiful. It was sad. We wept over him. We lost him just last year. And it was hard. And Liz is now a single mom with three kids. But you know what she would tell you? Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Do you want to know the secret of contentment? Jesus is enough. That's the secret of contentment. Contentment. 
It's not selling multi-million dollar New York Times best-selling books. There's a lot of secrets that people sell a lot of books for. And they make the best of the self-help chart list. But the secret of contentment is you, know wanna be, you wanna know how to be brought high and brought low. Live in prosperity or poverty. Jesus is enough. Even if you die hungry, Jesus is enough. Paul wrote this in prison not knowing if he would live or die. So we could take his word for it. Jesus is enough. Tony Merida writes, We might wish that a certain crisis would break us from our love affair with this world. But contentment isn't learned in a single crisis. It's learned through exposure of times of need and times of plenty. It involves a regular struggle to believe that Christ is enough. Chances are everybody here has went through crisis. And we would all probably be like, all right, got my crisis. I'm done, God. You taught it to me. Lesson learned, right? That's good enough. Lesson is learned. But it's God's grace when he gives us those crisis moments that causes us to cling to Jesus. In our community group this last week, we asked the question, share, with a, share a time in your life where you had, all you had to rely on was Jesus Christ. Everybody had a story. Everybody had something in their life where they had to rely on Jesus Christ. And we said, man, isn't it amazing what God does? Would you want to go back to it again? No stinking way. <laughs> no way. But did God do a good thing? Yes. Would you be willing to walk through times like that again and again and again so that Jesus might be proven to be enough in your life? And if that's the case, it's a good gift. Count it as acceptable in Christ. Walk in contentment. Receive the things that God has for you. Verse 13, famous verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You, you've all heard that verse. Tim Tebow's got it plastered with some black eyeliner under his eye. Philippians 4.13, right? It's not about winning a football game, though. It's not about starting a new business. It's about getting through whatever God calls you to get through with your hands clutched to Christ. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Moving on, second part of this, the fruit of contentment. The root of contentment is Christ. The fruit of contentment is God's growth in our lives. God's growth in our lives. Philippians 4.14 Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except only you. Even in Thessalonica, uh, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. The root of contentment is Jesus. And the fruit that it bears in your life is generosity. How can you spot a content person? They're generous. They're generous. They're lavishly generous. 
Not how can you spot a rich person? How can you spot a person with all the money in the bank? How can you spot a content person? You can be lavishly generous even in your poverty. And this is the church of Philippi. Paul talks about them to the church of Corinth that had means well above the means of the church of Philippi. And he says that even in their poverty, even when they didn't have the money, they gave it. Like, we we have this qualification list of God. God, I'll be generous if this. God, I'll be generous with this much money in the bank. God, I'll be generous if you build up this nest egg. God, I'll be generous if. No, no, no. Are you content? And you'll be generous. If Jesus is enough, generosity will flow from your life. Because that's what contentment produces. If Jesus is enough, then you can let go of the things that you hold so tightly to. Here, it's your money. You can give. Paul says no other church did it. No other church shared in this partnership in the gospel except only the church of Philippi. If you get the gospel, then you will give for the gospel. If you get the gospel, then you will be generous for the advancement of the gospel. You know why that's the case? Because you know what you've been given through the gospel. For though he was rich for our sake, he became poor. So that we, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus went from the top to the bottom. Never been heard of. Nobody's trying to lose all their money overnight or all their wealth and riches overnight. Jesus did it. He went from the glories and thrones of heaven. He became a meager and mere man. He humbled himself to the point of obedience, to the point of death on the cross. That's the beauty of what we've received in Jesus Christ. And if you believe that, everything that you have, everything that you are, belongs to God. You'll be generous. You'll be generous, even if it hurts. Why? Because your generosity is worship. Because your generosity is worship. Paul said it bears fruit like a fragrant aroma or offering to God. God is pleased with your worship. God is pleased with your generosity. Why is God pleased with your generosity? Because it reveals not the gift, but the heart of the person who gave it. You see, it's not about your money. It's not about your stuff. It's not God saying He wants your money. He doesn't need your money. I'll even tell you this. The church doesn't need your money. Jesus is building the church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we don't need that. But one of the things we do need and we do seek is your growth in Christ. We seek your growth in Jesus. And where you give, we rejoice because it reveals your heart. Your partnership in the gospel. That you've got skin in the game with us. And that you're willing to sacrifice to see the name of Jesus Christ proclaimed. So that dear friends and brothers and sisters might come to know Christ. Oh, it's a good gift. It's a good gift. When you get the gospel, you give. Next point. Under the fruit of contentment is that it leads to faith. Verse 18, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And my God will supply every need of yours 
He'll supply it all in Christ. Paul's convinced of that because Paul himself has received every need met from Jesus Christ. Hudson Taylor, a missionary who, incred- who, who endured incredible difficulties, says this, When God's work is done in God's way for God's glory, it will not lack God's supply. It will not lack God's supply. And I would say even if you die on the mission field, God still gave you everything that you needed because all you needed is Jesus Christ and to live as Christ and to die as gain. Don't forget that. To live as Christ and to die is gain. To the glory of God. To the glory of God the Father. Jesus is not going to hold back with you that which you need most. Himself. And like a good father, he's not going to withhold good gifts from his children. Jesus himself says, what father would turn his son away when he says, I'm hungry, I have needs, Father, give me needs. I love my son. I love him. And if he came and he needed something and I had the opportunity to give it to him, I would do it. Listen, God will supply your needs. But God won't supply your greeds. God will supply your needs, but He won't supply your greeds. It's a needs list that we come to the Lord and we ask for His supply. But listen, God will break those greeds so that we rely on Him. He wants a church that's open-handed, not closed-handed and greedy. He wants a people that lavishly can tell of His wondrous works. Not people who say, we're just barely scraping by. We can't help you. I'm sorry. Jesus himself walked a life without prosperity. He lived a life of poverty, stating that God could supply every one of his needs. And if God could do that for Jesus and the Apostle Paul and my friends Mark and Liz Hadaway and Hudson Taylor, he can do it for you and he could do it for me. And he will because he is rich and he is generous and he is gracious and he wants the glory of it all. And he'll get it. He's going to use us to do so. Count it all joy. Count it all joy. We have the final greetings here. Philippians 2, 4, 21 through 23. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. And the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I found this one of the shortest final greetings of the Apostle Paul's letters. He actually only mentions one name, and the name that he mentions is the name of Caesar, ironically enough. He says the saints, especially in Caesar's household. I think that's really cool. You know why? Because Paul has been preaching the gospel in Rome, and it's hit the Roman guard, the, the, the prisoner, the, the, he's a prisoner under the Praetorian, the imperial guard, he's chained to them and he's advancing the gospel person by person and like a wildfire it's spreading and even those in Caesar's household are hearing it and they're saying tell the church in Philippi we love them and we're praying for them and we want to see God do an incredible work in that place. You got churches that are praying for you this morning, you got saints all over. There are people that God has placed in, uh, in, in governments around this world to bring the gospel to bear in them. 
That's why we need people who will go to the hard places and the hard times doing the hard things for the advancement of the gospel so that it will spread in incredible, unimaginable ways. Even in the household of Caesar, who thought he himself was king, there are those in his household that their loyalties were to Jesus and not to Caesar. Amen? Amen? It's a good word. Here's what I want us to do. Can Paul... The story of Paul, Saul of Tarsus being converted to Paul. Can that tell something to you? It's that you're never too far gone for the grace of God. Maybe you walked in today and you've been far from God. And maybe today now is your Damascus Road experience where that light shines. And you're blinded to everything you need to be blinded to. But your eyes are open to the glories and the wonders of Jesus Christ. And you came to Christ today by receiving that message, God God giving it to you. Take communion, receive the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ because he died for you. His blood was spilled for you. Receive that as a good gift that Jesus Christ is enough. Maybe you've been walking with God for a long time and you think that Jesus is enough for eternal life but not for everyday life. Philippians tells us that we have an everyday God. In an everyday message of salvation that will save us in our most dire and difficult situations. And the message of this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus is enough. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus is enough. And that we could walk in his wholeness and holiness today. We come to you and we ask, God, that you would overwhelm us, God, with a sense of joy right now. God, joy not in how much money we have or don't have, or joy in not how well our job is going. God, joy in not even our family life or the beautiful weather outside, but joy in you, in you. Because on that mount... You carried that cross. You took the nails. You took the lashes that I deserved. My sin was put upon you and you were punished in my place, God, to give me the message that Jesus, that you are enough. You're enough for my past and erasing it. You're enough for my present and the situations I'm in right now, and you're enough for everything that I might go through in the future, that I will go through in the future. You're enough. And I receive it. And I ask God that if it would be your will, both for me and for us, that you would strip away all the things that need to be laid bare. And that you would draw us to our knees so we would cry out that you are vastly more valuable than anything else, that all this world will grow strangely dim in light of your glories and grace. It's in Christ's name the church says, amen. We're going to stand and worship through song, and Josiah will invite us up for a time of communion.